Welcome to Takes It Took, 1304.5, The Bone. What's going on, guys? Today, we're going to be playing some Fortnite. Fortnite. <laughs> Gamer hour. But actually, before we talk about movies, we have to talk about movies. Yeah. So what movies have y'all been watching? Um, well, something that was really, really cool is that um, I am going to film school and one of my professors Nerd. hooked <laughs> me and Stefan up with tickets to go see the brand new Banshee's Vinishiran movie, um, which has been out now by the time that this episode comes out. But on top of it being a screening, there is a and a with the writer and director martin mcdonough who um if you know me he is my favorite director of oh, all okay, time cool. yeah. I, and I, i'm sure you could see the loss in my eyes <laughs> I yeah. was not um and the actor colin farrell who just played the penguin in the batman i see yes so he yeah, he stars I, in that movie i was telling Mariah, i was like miles isn't gonna know you, at names. this point you should know i'm so goddamn bad with names um if you were like it's got the penguin from the new batman movie i'd be like oh my god amazing if uh, you were like it's colin farrell have you seen the gentleman maybe okay well he's in that too anyway he he's done movies called in bruges seven psychopaths and uh three billboards outside of Ebbing, missouri he also won an oscar for a short film called six shooter back in 2006 this is mcdonough not colin farrell yes um Shit, I was I, I wrote, you could tell i was typing in colin farrell um i wrote my english undergrad thesis paper on martin mcdonough's plays so mm. huge huge fan of him yeah and um, uh and it was really neat. You to, told him that. Yes, because I got to meet him. I got to shake that man's hand and talk to him for a few minutes, which oh was God. absolutely insane. And I got to say hi to Colin Farrell. Yeah, you looked him dead in the eyes. He said, yeah, I really like the toxic masculinity in your work. And, and he, he said, went, oh. interesting. Um, I also got to say hi to Colin Farrell. And the other actor who happened to show up was Sam Rockwell, who was just in See How They Run, the movie that we all went to see together like a couple months ago, The Murder Mystery. He's also, in, he's also in the movie Moon. Oh, okay. The you, one I think you like that one. The one where it's him and there's clones of him. Yeah. And I just spoiled the movie for anybody who hasn't it, seen it. Yeah. Well, that's revealed kind of soonish. All right. Anyways. Anyway, so I got to um, meet them and I got to talk to Martin yeah. McDonough, who's my favorite director of all time. So, so that was an cool, absolute cool. highlight of my year. So I just want to, um, again, thank my professor for hooking me up with those tickets. That was insane. And the movie itself was phenomenal. So if it's still out, watch it. Yeah. If it's out on video on demand. Watch it. It is about um, two friends in Ireland in 1920s during the Civil War. And one friend decides he wants to stop being friends with the other one because he just doesn't like him anymore. Oh, man. So My relationship with Stefan. Yeah. Yeah. On and off like every week. Yeah. It, anyway, it was really, really good. Really phenomenal experience. So that was, that's the movie I want to talk about. Well, Very cool. Better that's... than any movie I saw. I got to sell Mariah damn near poof of pants waiting to <laughs> yeah. talk to these people. You could see it in her so eyes. Nervous. She was sweating. She was nervous. Sweating bullets. I'm like getting hot just thinking about her it. Her eyes were darting around. Oh my God. It was, it was very fun to stand next to her just watching her like freak out. I almost shit myself. It was And then me incredible. and Martin were just kind of like, hey. We <laughs> were like, hey. It was up. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. Really, uh, really cool. I'll keep mine short because Mariah was just uh, so indulgent. It was very long-winded. I apologize. Um, I watched a movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It was a very good movie. It was a uh, 1978. It's got Donald Sutherland in it. It's a Donald Sutherland. It's a horror thriller movie. Horror thriller about about these these things that come in and they like duplicate people. Much much akin like to the thing. The thing. Except in this one, it's actually like in a city. 
And so we're seeing oh, kind shit. of like how it's affecting society. Yeah. And like everything's falling. And unlike the thing, it like duplicates you. So you still exist. Oh, it I just see. makes a copy of you and then it tries to kill you. Is this the one where it's you? like you could tell by like something very slight with their eyes or something like that? I do believe there is something like that. But yeah, there there was a couple of different things where it's just like, oh, the way they behave is got some rules to it that determines yeah. whether or not you could tell if they're a, what do they call them? A pod person. That's what pod they were. Pod person. Pod people. <laughs> but it was actually really good. I highly recommend it. I, I actually got very uh, invested in it okay. as it went on. Isn't there like a 1950s version? There's a well? 1950s okay. version and there's like a 1990s version. There's okay. a couple of different versions. I'm talking about the 1978 version. Okay. Very good. The music was great. Some of the cinematography is really interesting. Hmm. That's all. Miles. Sick. I watched. Hold on. Let me swallow my gum. Foul. Awesome. Yeah. I watched all three John Wick movies. Oh my goodness. Uh, in what span of time? In a row. Okay. Like like every night or like in one like night? Like in one, one night. Oh, Damn. I watched all three John Wick movies. <laughs> What's your favorite one? One. It's the first yeah. one. It's, yeah. Okay. First one? Good. It has Willem Dafoe in it. It does have Willem Dafoe, so it's amazing. It's actually... Yeah. I don't remember that. It's great. He plays like He's his like friend. He's like a sniper, yeah. Yeah. Okay. John Wick 1, beautiful. John Wick 2 is good. It's what you expect from a John Wick movie, but it's not as good as one. Because yeah. in one, like John Wick is making his own choices. He's deciding what's going to happen in his life. Yeah. And John Wick 2, he's kind of like forced to do everything. So you don't get the same like he's, he's doing it for a reason. And then John Wick 3, you're just like, this is kind of boring. This is mid. I'll be honest. Yeah, I don't remember the three ones super well. Yeah. One of the fight scenes is just like dog bite someone. Okay. Shoot person in head dog go bite someone else shoot that person in i was head. like the, he was like okay this is boring i don't need five minutes of this i remember the like one of the last fight scenes was kind of cool there's a couple i mean there's good fight scenes in it i there's yeah there's always going to be good fight scenes but it's just like they're not but of not, the quality in the first not one. not the same yeah and it's not just whether or not the fight scenes are good but whether you know it works well with the whole story yeah well because in the third one this is like the last thing i'll say before we actually get into it but in the third one, the only decision he makes is whether or not to rejoin being like in this kind of hitman assassin right. world. And then he immediately reverts back against that decision like 20 minutes later. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, you cut your finger off my guy. I don't know if you really thought that one through. Mm. But John Wick, that's a story for another time. Right now, we're talking about the hit film... Hit film for all ages, family friendly. You've probably seen it in your childhood. Came out 1987. This movie should not have come out in 1987. And I'll get into that a little bit. But Ooh. interesting. This movie, like, it's a Kubrick movie. It took forever to do. It took longer than it was actually supposed to for multiple reasons. But that's not important. Tell me. Tell me. What is this movie? All Mariah, right. go. All right. So the first half is very easy to talk about, yeah, which you, is yeah. great. You do the first so, 30 minutes. So I, I got this down pat. Um, it drops you in immediately into just army like training, and you have uh, motherfuckers. You're fumbling, balder than me. <laughs> you have a drill sergeant absolutely destroying these new recruits, and it's just them essentially going through all their trainings, and then um, you get introduced to Leonard, who um, earlier me calls 
Gomer pile. Yeah, Gomer pile. pile. And just absolutely shits on him the whole time and Mm -hmm. is just like, you are worthless. You are fat fuck. Like, he's just super mean. Well, he's mean to everybody. Yeah. Um, But you get introduced to like uh, Joker, who's kind of like the protagonist. You get introduced to Cowboy. You get introduced to like kind of the core people in the training. Um, And it's them going through like recruitment and learning how to shoot and learning how to clean their rifle and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's there's just like drills and stuff. Like, I don't know what else to really say Humbling. about it. But right, then, hold on, I'm not oh, okay. done. Okay, well, I mean, it's just like it's just like it's just it's just scenes of them what training. At the end? And then um, Gomer Pyle, also known as Leonard, um, he just kind of keeps fucking up. And so then the drill sergeant, or the army, basically says, "Anytime you fuck up, I'm gonna punish the whole." Um, the whole team, fuck you. So then they all hate him. So then they beat him with soap and then he cries and then he starts to slowly go insane and he starts talking to his rifle um, named Charlene, I think, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then um, eventually there's one night that Joker is patrolling and he goes into the bathroom and there is Leonard with his gun and he's doing the classic Kubrick stare. And then Arlie Yermy comes in and is like, what the fuck is going on, you piece of shit? Get it, get the fuck back in, you piece of shit. And then um, Leonard shoots him and then shoots himself. Double kill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that would go. Yeah, positive kitty. Um, okay, so then uh, our protagonist, Joker, gets a job as a, a reporter in the military. And he's, he's over there in Vietnam now. And the Tet Offensive happens, which, if you know, is sort of what effectively split Vietnam in half and what really you know turned the tide of the Vietnam War. And so because of that, they want they want Joker to go out and start getting some news, some writing. They send him out with another one of his buddies, Rafter Man. They reunite with Cowboy from training and his little platoon. And together they go on and they fight and they do stuff. They look at things, take photos, write things. And then they get in this altercation with a sniper that uh, kills guys. And they get shot and they go slow-mo. Another guy runs up, he gets shot and goes slow-mo and goes, mm, what you say? <laughs> and then another guy gets shot and goes slow-mo and goes, mm, what you say? And then they get the sniper and it's really messed up. It's a sad moment as they kill this this woman. And, and they girl. stand and she's they, going, they, shoot this girl. Me. Yeah, and then uh, they all get the uh, thousand-yard stare and then march off into the darkness sing, they sing singing. the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Theme. Here, wait, let's mm-hmm. all do it. <clears throat> I don't want to get copyright. 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 Hey, they were able to do it. They had money to pay for it. You think so? I feel. I feel like they wouldn't have allowed that. No. You think? You think? think, I really don't think (laughs) you think that was. Anyways, that's the movie. Wonderful. Good job. War is bad. Who would have thought? Boo. Well, I'll get into that later. But, um, great. Now let's get into it. This movie had a budget. Of seventeen million dollars. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Which is—it's a good amount of money. It's a good amount of money. Time. I feel like you know most movies we do stick around in the single-digit millions. Y- yeah, actually. Yeah, that we've covered. On I the think po- Ocean's Eleven, but, was but they've bigger. been older though, so yeah. So like the inflation, inflation yeah, considering yeah. all that stuff. But but seventeen million dollars. I'm going to tell you what that went into because boy, oh boy, is Kubrick goddamn crazy. I think it's going to be the main thing that we can all yeah. get away from this. Yeah. That Kubrick is a madman. Um, but this movie is actually uh, inspired and kind of based on the book by Gustav Hasford, The Short Timers. Gustav. Sorry if I goofed up your name. I don't know if you're alive or not, but whatever. Gu- Gustav goofed up. So pre-production of this movie is um, a bit intense. And I have a lot of it spieled out right here. 
in no particular order. Okay. <laughs> because there was so much of it that I kind of just like firing from just, the hip. I was just rapidly typing. So when they were in pre-production, they brought on a man named Anton First, uh, who created scale models of mm. pretty much all the sets. I've heard about this. So like little tiny versions of the barracks, all the places in Vietnam, and Kubrick would use these little models to kind of figure out all the different shots that he wanted to do, you know, before ever touching on set. That's kind of cool. So he would Which get is... like, yeah, he would get like a little micro lens and like mm, put a yeah. camera in the set. I think in the I've little seen tiny a set. picture of that. Actually. Yeah. yeah. And that camera would be uh, sending footage to um, like a monitor so he could see what it was going to look like. And so, you know, he'd go with actors and show them this little set. And he's like, you're going to play with like a little fucking dollhouse. He's like, you're going <laughs> to yeah. stand right here and walk around. and do, 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 do. Which I honestly think is actually a really cool idea. Really smart I idea. I mean, if you have the money you have the money and the time Kubrick, to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, he does this for pretty much all his movies. I was like, yeah. I've seen, you know, footage of him doing that with like The Shining. Yeah, The stuff. Shining was a, the, another big one that he did it with. So the, the barracks themselves, the... You know, in movie, it's set in Paris Island's Military Corp recruiting depot in South Carolina. Oh. So, which is like an actual, you know, it's an actual place where they kind of did this stuff. Mm -hmm. But Kubrick is a silly little man. D yeah. Who, if you didn't know, doesn't like flying. Yeah. Ain't he British? He British. Well, well he's he's actually not British. Oh. You're right. He... I think he, he was American or born in America. He was born in America. So, okay, side tangent. Okay. I think he's from the Bronx. Yes. It, it always talks about how he has like a Bronx accent. Um. So I, I he is American born, purebred. But purebred American. <laughs> you know, he was talking about there's three places you can make movies: L.A., New York, and London. Yeah. Um. And he said that London was just strictly better than New York. Uh. L.A. is the best place because it's Hollywood, but he hates it here. So he's like, so don't do blame him. I. Yeah. Um, he's like, my only option is London. So he moved to London. He has a nice little farmhouse with apparently like 25 rooms in it. Uh, <sighs> only? Yeah. Most of which he has kind of dedicated to movie making. So he's got like an editing room, a production room. Wow. Like all these okay. different Imagine. things. Imagine. That's sick. Yeah. He makes a note that he's got a four foot fence, but purely for his dogs so they don't run out into the streets. So if you want to rob Kubrick, you can. Well, well, you might need a shovel. <laughs> He's not alive. It might have been a four foot fence, but now you got to dig six feet. Yeah. If you want to rob his old house, <laughs> you can. And if you want, yeah, if you want to rob, I want, him. I want what's in his pockets. <laughs> womp womp. Um. Do you get it? Because he's dead. He's dead. Yeah. He didn't like flying when he was alive. He only ever came really back to America for like one thing, and that was 2001 screening, like the premiere of it. Oh, okay. But he sailed uh -oh. to America. Hmm. He didn't fly. Very interesting. So, so he. I feel like this is past. I don't like flying. This is he. He's afraid of flying. Yeah. So when he was making the movie, he's like, I don't. I don't want to fly anywhere. I want to be here yeah. in London. That that was something I knew about him was that he did most of his stuff in. In England. Yeah. So so the barracks set in Paris Island Marine Corps Recruit Depot 
uh, actually filmed in London Borough of Enfield. And there's a military base not too far away from that where they did all the outside scenes. So like the actual training grounds Mm -hmm. is on an actual uh, English like military base. So he he wants to do everything in London. So they have to create, they kind of have to like recreate the barracks set. uh, And they got it damn near one to one to the Paris Island military base. That's very impressive. The only difference is there's no uh, verses when you're shitting. Oh. So, because in, right. in the movie, you know, you got two toilets facing each other. You can look at your friend and... Dead in the eye. Yeah. Dead in the eyes and race each other. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's not there in the actual one. It's only one, one row, row on each side of the wall. So you have to, like, turn your head to the side if you want to race your buddy, which I think right. is worse. So... Another reason Kubrick didn't want to leave London is if he had to fly anywhere, like because you know production's going to take forever. His dog, if they had moved to back to America, would have been in quarantine for six months, and so he was like, "No, I'm not doing it. I don't want my dog to be in quarantine for six months." So that's just another little bit. Uh, Man really likes his dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, so they obviously shot in London. All of this was done in northeast on northeast London, um, which includes all the Vietnam parts. Really? Yeah. So a little bit about that in a second, because first I want to say they when they were scouting all these places, they had over 20 hours of scouting footage, which is like around 100 rolls of film. Damn. So it was crazy. Um, For some of our viewers who aren't familiar with Kubrick, and if what we've talked about so far hasn't given you any sort of inkling of this man, he is one of the most tyrannical tyrannical um meticulous yeah that's a good word directors known ever every every single detail and facet every of what detail. he did needed to be every you know, it needs to be out. every detail is worked out perfectly and it needs to be exactly how he wants it precisely and it doesn't matter how many takes yeah yeah it takes very very famously to, to get, get the took wow very famously in the shining he did a take 127 times yeah which is absurd nutso. that is that that is not only nutso but like really just cruel to do to your actors i will say obviously i'm in i'm in film school but uh part of it is like i don't have budget or time but like i'll do like three takes and be like yeah that was great yeah time to move on mm-hmm. not kubrick i can't imagine doing something 127 times yeah. that's insane so so, so just yeah. know 20 hours of scouting footage is absurd yeah Going through 20 hours of footage, it's almost a whole day of just watching, going, yep, that's a good place. Oh, that's not a good place. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, insane. He refuses the title of perfectionist. Really? He thinks it's slander uh, and something that media uses to make him look bad. He says that he makes good movies (laughs) and whatever it takes to make a good movie is what it takes. So he's not a perfectionist. He just likes making good movies. Okay. But all of the major Vietnam locations were filmed at an East London gas works, which is essentially just a, a place that makes gas. Sort of like a factory. Yeah. Like. It's, if you think of it a rundown factory, boom, you have a picture of the East London gas works. Got it. Everywhere they filmed, was with, including Kubrick's house, was within 30 miles of each other. Hmm. That's a dream. That's fantastic. This man would go to set, do his work, and then go home to his wife and kids. Yeah, that's great. It is pretty cool. It was perfect. And what was even more perfect was the fact that this gas works 
already looked like Vietnam, especially mm. the, the outskirts, uh, because Leon Vitali, Kubrick's right-hand man, said that the gasworks was constructed by the same company of architects that created Hue in Vietnam. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So Are you shitting that's me? That's a crazy coincidence. Yeah, so there were buildings at the gasworks that were one-to-one replications of buildings in Vietnam. That is phenomenal. So it already looked almost exactly like some of the more industrial places of Vietnam. Huh. It was perfect. What was even more perfect was the gasworks was set for demolition. So they could blow it up? They could do whatever they wanted. They had like no rules as to you know what they had to do with this place. They didn't have to protect it. They didn't have to like yeah. keep it in pristine condition. Yeah, that's they, like they could that do whatever they wanted. That's a gold mine of great. a location. That's insane. There was a guy named Anton. I, I can't remember his last name because I didn't write it down because I'm a fool of a man. But <laughs> he kind of did the the you know set dressing and stuff like that. And it was in one interview, someone said. He was the luckiest man because he's probably the only person that got to do set dressing with a wrecking ball. <laughs> because he'd be like, I want a hole in that building. And they'd be like, okie dokie. And then just wrecking ball a hole through the building. That would be cool. They would set charges and destroy pillars so that buildings would fall over a certain way. And they'd be like, okay, there's, there it is. There's our Fantastic. destroyed building. And Kubrick was like, if you, you want to recreate a war-torn zone, if you try to recreate rubble, it's never going to look right. You need <laughs> rubble. You got to get rubble. And they had rubble. They had rubble. They had Barney rubble. Yeah. Rubble. They, I mean, they had everything they needed to make kind of like a battlefield. Hmm. So I'm surprised they just end up shooting with mortars and tanks at that honestly, point. Honestly, I'm surprised they didn't. Kubrick did want to use dynamite, but they didn't let him use dynamite. Hmm. They had to use special charges for it. One thing they did not have, though, is foliage. Mm. I was gonna ask about like the the palm trees and stuff. Dude, I got yeah. a whole bit right here about the palm oh, trees. Fantastic! I'm yeah, so glad I was you asked about those, the palm trees. And it was like knowing that it was in England. I'm like, England ain't got palm trees. They don't have palm trees. Kubrick was again a goddamn madman. God rest his soul. Uh, he would so he hired a man named Philip Honey, who was in charge of all the palm trees. He was basically his like palm tree dealer. <laughs> Oh, Philip, honey. <laughs> oh, oh, Philip, honey. Oh, Philip, honey. I need my special <laughs> palm trees. Daddy's got the fixings again. <laughs> so Kubrick had these trees imported from Spain. <laughs> Cow. Okay. I mean, honestly, I will I, say I this doesn't seem crazy to me because no, you obviously it trees. sells it. And if you already no, yeah. have the perfect location, like you just stick a few palm trees in the ground, like you're set. If you told me Kubrick went and he's like, hey, I need 120 palm trees. Give me the palm trees. I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's film stuff. If you told me Kubrick handpicked 120 palm trees and numbered them and could tell the difference no. between all of the palm trees no. and got mad if they put palm tree 25 in the position where no. palm tree 63 was supposed to be, no. then I might tell you, okay, Kubrick might be a little no. silly. Okay, obviously this is an audio platform. My jaw literally just no. dropped. Are you kidding me? This yeah. man is playing with Legos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is not real life. Oh my so, God. He was so particular about what palm trees were going to be used he would take pictures of so he wouldn't take pictures they had pictures of vietnam and he would plaster the palm trees that he wanted onto these pictures and go do it like that 
And then when they did it, he'd be like, well, that's Palm Tree 28. I didn't want Palm Tree 28. I wanted Palm Tree 63. And then they'd have to dig out the palm tree and put the right palm tree in because Kubrick's a goddamn madman. If if I knew he weren't such a jerk, <laughs> I, I would find this much more respectable. It's still weird, but I'd be like, wow, like man knows what he wants. But knowing that this was at, you know, the dismay of many people, <laughs> kind of like, oh my goodness, man. Yeah. There, there was also 100,000 fake plants brought in by Hong Kong. Uh, but not nearly as important as the why, palm trees. Why do they get it? Why do they come from Hong Kong if they're fake? I don't know. I don't know. It just said that, you know, specifically these 100,000 fake plants were from Hong Kong. The woman was too stunned to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little also. So this took, you know, a year or something to make, like just the production of it. They had to keep the palm trees perfectly watered during this time. And if you don't know palm tree care, it's fucking hard. You can't just, you have to water the leaves of a palm tree. Yeah, I was actually thinking when we started talking about palm trees, I'm like, you know, I had not really seen palm trees until coming to California. And I was like, that must mean that they're really hard to maintain unless you're in the right environment. Yeah, they are ungodly hard to maintain. Well, especially if you're trying to maintain them in England where they are <sighs> not native at all. Yeah. Yeah. So they had to get a fire truck to spray water up on top of the palm trees to keep them nice and green. But it's it's rainy in England, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. That's just they had to water it a very particular I don't know way. Enough about palm trees. Dude. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm palm tree law. Philip Honey was a very particular man about his palm trees. Well, so is Kubrick. So it seems like they were a match made in heaven. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Vincent Honey. But now it's time to get some actors. Let's get some dang old actors in this movie. We got neat actors. Let's start with the two big boys. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who played Private Piles. Pyle. Um, oh. You're Miles. <laughs> Pyle. And Matthew Modine, who played Private Joker. I need Modine. The only other thing that I know Matthew Modine from is Stranger Things, I think. He's in Stranger Things? Yeah, he plays <laughs> Papa. Oh. Right? Right? I don't know. Didn't, like, didn't watch it. Well, because I've only ever seen him as young man. So seeing him as old man. Young man. Copyright. Copyright strike number. It's not a copyright strike. It's just a scene. Yeah. Stranger Things. He's also in The Dark Knight Rises. So Vincent D'Onofrio was originally a theater actor doing stage plays. Mm, uh, okay. Stuff like Mice and Men and, and whatnot. Ooh, love Mice and Men. Was he Lenny? Probably. Well, okay. So this motherfucker is actually fit as hell. He's a goddamn beefcake at this point. Like, he played Thor in a movie at one point. Oh, really? Dude is caked up. He's so goddamn beefy. Okay. Mm. Uh, he's lean, he's fit, and he has also just met fellow actor Matthew Modine uh, during his time as a theater actor. And Matthew Modine, uh, gonna like, you know, go over to him for a second because you kind of need to know his role before you can get into Vincent's. So Matthew Modine was already kind of on Kubrick's radar. He wanted Modine to play a role in the movie. He just didn't know kind of what. And so Alan Parker, I think, was just like an assistant to Kubrick, sent him a scene that Modine had done. And Kubrick was unimpressed because the scene was basically him just yelling at another person. So Kubrick was just like, all this tells me is that you know how to yell. Uh, but there's a, the very end bit of that scene is just Modine quietly not talking. You know, he's just like sitting there, like 
sorrowful. Uh, and that was what won Kubrick over. That's good. And so with Modine casted, he was kind of just doing his life now before you know the filming started. He was in Times Square with his wife and ran into Vincent, who was working at the Hard Rock Cafe at the time. And, you know, he told him, hey, there's one role left in this Kubrick film. Uh, I don't exactly know what it is, but, you know, you should send in a tape. And so Vincent does that. He sends in a recording of like a, you know, three to four monologues of him talking. At this time, though, the camera was insanely big. So it's like this kind of shoulder camera that you have to have with a sling where it's like a backpack sized recorder uh, that goes to like a VHS tape. And so he rented this out with his buddy. You know, he shoots three to four monologues and sends it in. During this time, so he's sent it in at this point. During this time, Kubik brought Matthew Modine in into a room wall to wall with videotapes. And Kubrick said, these are just the good ones. Because in a paper, I mean, he, he wanted just about anybody who could play the role. So Kubrick put in a newspaper, I'm making a movie, send in your tape. Well, and if you see, Stanley Kubrick is looking for an actor. Yeah. Um... Could yeah, you imagine if like, try to Spielberg get in did that? Yeah. Yeah. Matthew is like, well, what about this guy? You have his tape. What about Vincent? And so Matthew, very hard, kind of like rooted mm. for Vincent to get the, the job. And so Kubrick looks at his tape and he goes, this is actually pretty good. So he calls Vincent. And Vincent believed that Kubrick was English. He didn't think the man was from the Bronx. So he gets mm. a call from Kubrick. You know, hey, I'm Kubrick. Bronx accent. And he goes, haha, funny joke. <laughs> You're just one of my friends goofing with me. Mm, click. Oh. Hangs up on Kubrick because he thought he was just goofing off. And uh, Kubrick calls back and he's like, please don't hang up. <laughs> <laughs> this is Kubrick. I would like you to do a couple lines of from, my, from the movie uh, Full Metal Jacket that has yet to be released. I'm making it. <laughs> <laughs> and this... This motherfucker. Oh, no. Knowing full well that he is talking to goddamn Kubrick goes, you know, it's going to cost me money to record another take. And Kubrick goes, all right, I'll send you money. And so he sends him lines and money to get the video equipment to rent out again. And he sends him uh, the other lines. Do you know like what the lines were? Like, from I what am part? in a world of brown. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, okay. No. But he, you know, he did the lines again, and he didn't expect to get the role. But like, I wonder if he did. He did, yeah. <laughs> Kubrick told him, "Guess hey, we'll never know." Hey, buddy, come on over to England. Oh, I might come on over <laughs> to England. We've got a movie shooting. Oh, I could be good. And Vincent said, "Buddy, I don't have an agent. I don't have anyone to like help me with all this." And Kubrick goes, "Oh, that's easy. Just go to an agency and tell them you're in a Kubrick movie. You'll get one insanely fast." Yeah. yeah. So that's what he did, and he got an agent insanely fast, and he was off to London. And then I he mean, got... yeah, can you imagine, again, like Stefan said, like Spielberg hits you up and is like, I want you to star in this movie, and you're like, I don't, I don't got an agent. You just go into an agency, and you're like, I'm in a Spielberg movie. I need, I need they help. They would be like, yeah. <laughs> 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 they'd be fighting each other. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. And then, and then also he gets, to, he gets to London, and then Kubrick shows up and he goes, oh. <laughs> Welcome to London. <laughs> Wait, that's not a Bronx accent. <laughs> but, Did you bring some Dunkin' Donuts? You bring a Dunkin' Donuts with you. Hey, where are the Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> but, so before coming to England, 
Um, <laughs> you can just stick RIP at the end of that. <laughs> Slide it in on Cool Egg. <laughs> Cooper was like, hey, man, you got to gain weight. You got to be a, a fat, little fatty, fat, fat, fat so. And so he did gain weight. He gained weight. He was eating like half loaves of bread for breakfast. Okay, so. I know he, he gained a lot of weight. He gained a, a decent amount of weight for Kubrick the first time. And Kubrick was like, well, you just look like you could kick everyone's ass. You just look big. You don't look <laughs> I see. weak fat. Yeah, I see. yeah there, there is a actually a distinct kind of like when someone's like big, but like threateningly so. Yeah. So yeah, he did gain at the end 70 to 80 pounds for the movie <sighs> before. And he said, you know, he was like, I was amazed at how differently I was treated. People treated me like I was dumber just because of the weight that i had gained interesting yeah sad yeah i do okay i i don't know if this is correct but i mean i'm looking at it right now but some random website i have heard that he holds the record for gaining the most weight he for, does yeah for a film role oh really i would have yeah. thought like christian bale got yeah it or i think yeah i believe he holds the record because he started off as like 200 pounds and then he went to 280 mm, good very Lord. quickly That's, too yeah uh, this man was eating his like everything he could get his hands on uh, so the the extra weight that he put on so quickly actually tore a ligament in his knee. Yeah, no, that's not good. It's so it's, unhealthy it's, to do it's that. It's insanely unhealthy. If you do it that quick too. He also broke his ankle at one point. Like during th- filming? During filming. Was it like during the training and stuff like that? Yeah, so when you... When he's, you know, the like part where there's like three logs and you have to like go up. On yeah, them? I knew it. I knew it. He I broke knew his he ankle hurt doing himself that. on that thing. Yeah, that's when he broke his ankle. But so his knee, he tore the ligament and needed surgery for it. Oh god. Uh, so he was in a knee brace for the rest of shooting. Okay. They uh, got long pants on. So. Yeah. Uh. So well, they're in their undies sometimes, though. Yeah. yeah. Probably just took it off for that. I'm guessing. Anyway, sorry. But he he had he was a good actor, I'll say, because. There was a bit, you know, where uh, Lee Ermey, the guy who plays mm-hmm. the sergeant, we love is you. slapping Joker, right? Yeah, keep going. That shot, they had to do over and over and over again. Sounds about Ugh. right. Because Cooper was like, well, it looks fake. It doesn't look like you're actually hitting him. Lee Ermey, by the way, apparently a terrible judge of distance, was slapping the shit out of Joker. Like, <laughs> actually just slapping the man. Silly. And so Cooper was like, well, it's not looking good from this shot, so let's, you know, move the camera. Did a couple more takes. And by a couple, I mean like, you know. 50. Tw- yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, that still doesn't look good. So let's go back to the original position and do it again. And so they did that. And uh, Vincent D'Onofrio knew that like, okay, if this slap doesn't look fucking good, we're going to be here all day. So he told Lee Ermey, slap the fucking shit out of me. Full force as hard as you can. And he wore his hat loose so that when he got slapped, his hat would spin around <laughs> yeah, to help sell it. Best believe that took only, it only took like one or two takes. I I actually really, I commented on this when we were watching it. I was like, the bit where he gets slapped and his like hat comes off, mm-hmm. his acting for that is really well done. Like his face where he looks like he's like going to cry, but he's <laughs> trying really hard not to is exactly how I'd react to that. Yeah. I, I'd have that same kind of like, mm-hmm. don't hit me. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe it's because. This man would, for some reason, whenever he was... Vincent or... Vincent, yeah. Okay. Whenever he was, you know, doing acting bits, he would play a dark version of Three Blind Mice, like <laughs> the melody in his head, just to, like, get that, like... <laughs> I mean, whatever it takes, man. 
That's how you get deranged, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so he he said that he was basically listening to this melody all day long, constantly, just in his head. I don't know why he did it, but I guess it worked. I'm doing it right now. Um, <laughs> and- Stefan's doing the thousand yard stare. Yeah. And this actually kind of goes into why. Because Vincent and Matthew are good buddies, right? They helped each Mm -hmm. other out. Matthew was the one who got Vincent the job. Right. By the end of filming, these motherfuckers hated each other. Oh. They absolutely despised each other. Like, it worked both ways. It was a two-way street. Truly. They they, they did not enjoy each other's company. Sad. And this is kind of because Vincent and Matthew had two very different ideas on where to get kind of your emotion from a character. Mm -hmm. So Matthew, I can't remember, like it's a certain, you know, person's school of thought, but essentially Matthew took his inspiration from the character and the lines. So he kind of imagined himself in the situations. So when you do that, you come out of it really quick. You know, when, when you hit action, you're in the character. When you say cut, you're out of it. So he was able to joke. He was laughing. He was goofing off in between takes. But Vincent pulled from his own personal life. And so he embodied the character really deep. And so when you do that, you don't come out of it when they roll cut. And so, you know, Vincent's constantly in it. Matthew's constantly out of it making jokes when it's not rolling. And Vincent was like, if you don't fucking stop, I'm going to beat you to death with this rifle. (laughs) And Matthew was like, no, fuck you. (laughs) you're a piece of shit what what the hell man very fitting for the man whose character is joker yeah yeah and so he was like they call me joker for a reason <laughs> like they call me joker i'm the joker I'm baby the joker, <laughs> so <laughs> they 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 actually just stopped talking after that mm. they used kubrick's daughter who was on set to communicate to each other so they'd be like we'll talk about her later oh really mm-hmm. do you have Are a bit yeah. I just, wow. I learned something. She she did the soundtrack. She did the score. Oh, look at that. Which I was like, huh. That's it. Yeah, so they'd be like, mm, can you tell Vincent that he oh needs to shut the fuck up? Oh, I hate that stuff, man. You know, yeah. That's happened in like, some well, of the movies we talked about. Can you tell Matthew that he needs to stop being a little bitch all the time? <laughs> so just shit like that. I like your impressions. Well, thank you. So can you tell Lawrence he has a little bit of brown on his <laughs> pants? Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. They hated each other, and then they had to shoot all the scenes where... Like, he's being nice yeah, and yeah, teaching him how to... Very, yeah. very motherly. So that's where they had... And they hated each other. So, you know, if you didn't get that impression from the movie, good job. They did a good job acting. Yeah. But Matthew actually bought a speed bag, and Vincent bought a weight set because they were like, well, I'm going to fight him. They were, like, prepping for a fight? They were prepping what? for a fight. Oh, my God. They, were, they hated each other so goddamn much. That they thought they might, that they they might were, break like, out. They were genuinely wow. like, yeah, we're going to fight each other. And it came time <laughs> to do the soap scene. And so the bars of soap, when they're actually hitting them, are oh. either they're either styrofoam or they're just a rag inside the rag. Okay. And Matthew yeah. was pissed. Because he's like, I want to beat the shit out of this guy. I want to bloody this guy up i don't like where this is going but i, was, I don't get to that's well, that's actually where it ends is just he was mad oh i thought you were gonna, gonna say like, like and so he yeah so he actually put soap in his no. sock and beat the no. shit out of him. just in the context of the movie i thought it interesting he he hits him way more than, than anyone others? else does yeah yeah that's all well i actually thought that it was fitting that he did that honestly yeah. mm-hmm. because he has been so nice and he's been so patient 
but like it's still not getting them anywhere. And so it's like I can imagine the frustration that he would feel doing yeah. that. So I totally actually understood why he yeah. hit him more. Well, obviously, I don't like violence. Mm-hmm. I don't like war. I don't like the fact that they hit him with soap. But well, I get it, it. yeah, doesn't what? mean he can't understand. Where they also did from. that shot eleven times. So I was thinking about that when they were doing it. I was like, I hope he's not actually getting hurt. I hope they didn't do this a lot. Also, again, really good acting from Benafio. His mm-hmm. crying just made me feel bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was really. Fun. Yeah. I want to talk about really quick one of the first scenes with him when he when Arlie Army's like wipe that smile off your face and he's like I'm trying and he's like making his mouth really small yeah. and he's trying to like hold <laughs> yeah. back his smile and I'm like oh man I have been there when like you're not supposed to laugh but like all you want to do is laugh mm-hmm. I like that and so his friends Vincent's friends after watching the movie you know for the first time they saw him smirking and smiling they're like oh my fucking god he's an idiot <laughs> he, he like he can't actually not smile <laughs> and then they were like, oh, okay, it's his character. He's supposed to be that fucking yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he apparently, when he, you know, he gets to the part where he's actually goddamn deranged, he took a lot of inspiration from like monster movies. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if you watched the Phantom of the Opera with the guy who has like the, yes. the kind of goofed up nose. Classic so, sort of. Like, yeah. Monsters. I can't remember the guy's name, but he loved those old kind of classic monster movies. Okay. Mm. So he took a lot of inspiration with kind of like scrunching up and, yeah. you know, he wanted to do the Kubrick stare and all of that. The postures. So, you know, he fucking blew his brains out in one take. It only took one and he fucking did it. Leading up to it, Kubrick was very like, do you know what you're going to do? And he was like, yeah, you know, I think I know what I'm going to do. And he's like, are you sure? Because it has to be brilliant. <laughs> oh god having kubrick like say that to you oh the pressure yeah now when i say kubrick said it has to be brilliant i thought you know uh george lucas was silly for saying do it faster <laughs> kubrick is a fucking monster he'd be like he wouldn't even give you do it faster he would just do it better oh, do it yeah, differently that's bad yeah that's bad he would not tell you what he wanted from you at all and it drove people goddamn insane yeah because he's like i you know he had something so specific in his brain that he wanted to see but he just wouldn't tell you what he wanted i wonder i wonder if that was him not telling or if he couldn't articulate it's uh, you know a lot of people argue that he just like he knew what he wanted to see but he didn't know what it was yeah you know i mean for i think part of it could be like he wants the actor to like find it naturally yeah, and say, so he's willing to see how many t- it's like, kind of a test he's willing to sit there through however many takes as long as it as long as it takes i mean for the actor to get there but at the same time i don't know help him out man yeah give him, yeah. Give him a hint <laughs> so okay two things one at one point matthew does go you know what the fuck does this guy want uh into which i'm sorry it's animal mother who says this Mm. Animal Mother, uh, when he's in Vietnam, is doing a bit with Joker, um, and they just like they're just not getting it. And you know, Animal Mother goes, "God, what the fuck does Kubrick want?" And Kubrick heard it. Wait, you, who? Animal Mother. He's he's the guy that was in Firefly or something. They, yeah, they normally was, call oh, them with a giant SMG who like runs the LMG oh, guys. I did not LMG. remember. They, that well, they call him Mother, but it's Animal Mother. Yeah. Uh, okay. Which that. That was like the first time. It was like the first time that I'd ever heard that name. That was wild. I yeah, I like yeah. knew his face, but I didn't know that was yeah. him. Sorry, you can cut that part out. So yeah, so Kubrick overheard him say because you know he kind of whispered it, and he went, "How about somebody who knows how to act?" And everyone was like, "Oh, oh, got him!" <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, having you know having seen this movie, 
and knowing that the dialogue and the way they deliver things in this movie is strange. Yeah, it's a little weird. It, they they do a lot of um, long pauses and just sort of like monotonous deliver, like a monotone delivery, mm-hmm. oftentimes. And there's sometimes where they're interacting, and I'm like, yeah, that's not a natural way you want to deliver, you know, your performance. And to try and find that without any help is be difficult. Yeah. Well, Kubrick also, you know, his main thing was. He wanted them to read the lines as if there was nothing else you could possibly say in the situation. So he complained a lot about like he could he could just tell by looking in their eyes that they were thinking about the next line Mm -hmm. they had to say. He wanted it to be just as natural as your normal speaking. See, that's hard to do when it's written. Yeah. You know. I, I think if uh, I you know I think if you say here here's what you got to say but like if you got to like mix it up so it's a little more like how you'd say it so it's a little more natural go for it but to be like make this artificial written dialogue natural is very difficult. Well, the actors had to. And now let's talk about somebody, the only person who is actually able to say their own lines. Yeah. Is it our man, Arlie Ermy? It's our man, Arlie Ermy. Which is unprecedented. So Lee Ermy's journey to this role is actually kind of wild. You know, a lot of people will know uh, Lee Ermy was in the military. Mm -hmm. So he he was kind of like a silly guy when he was younger. He was a Marine. He was a Marine. But, you know, when he was 17, he was a troublemaker. And so a judge was like, you can either go to a detention facility or join the military. Oh, shit. And so he joined the military and he he became a drill instructor and he fucking loved it. (laughs) Uh, He did it for 30 months. That's a lot. Two years. Two two and a half years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Plus some. I've round down. That's 30 months. Yeah. No, I know. I meant from my estimate. Plus some from my estimate. Why do you got to make things so difficult? (laughs) He loved being a drill instructor. So he did it for 30 months uh, in San Diego before he was sent to Vietnam uh, to fight. Uh, But he got shrapnel in his body from an explosive. Hmm. And he said that it ruined his long and lovely career being in Vietnam. Hmm. So he had to stop. Uh, And after that, you know, after the military, he went to school in the Philippines he was going to go to a school in America, but it was too expensive. So he went to the Philippines and then it was too expensive. So kind of just dicked around. Uh, and he would, <laughs> he would he would just kind of like, you know, he would go to a, a hotel because it was the only paper that had like the uh, red and white stripes newspaper. Mm-hmm. And he would specifically go there because he was a drill instructor. He would go and look at the obituaries of this newspaper so that he could see if he Dark. could see any of the names. And whenever he found a name that he was like, I trained that person, he just a pit in his stomach because he felt like he had failed them. Because, you know, his job is to prepare them for war and yeah. they died in war. Yeah. That's so sad. That is, that is actually sad <laughs> oh and dark. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and then he got in Blue Jeans commercials. Mm. You know, there's a way <laughs> Have out Have you seen the everybody. movie Whiplash by Damien Chazelle? <laughs> That's yeah. what you just did to me. There's so, a, go ahead. That's just, you know, there's... Always something better out there for you guys. Sometimes it's blue jeans. Yeah. So, I mean, because while he was out there, he did. What's <laughs> Kubrick's there? Sorry, my eyes just clinked in my drink. While while he was over in the Philippines, he kind of like met and hung out with some directors and, and producers uh, for like American stuff. Not There's not a whole lot of them, but he also met his wife during this time who was working at the uh, hotel that, you know, he would oh, get this damn. newspaper okay. at. And so... It'd be funny to meet a man at what is arguably his lowest. <laughs> yeah. But you look hot. What are you doing? 
I train this guy, he's dead. Fuck. I train this guy, he's dead. Oh, wanna go out later? Fuck. <laughs> One of the directors he met was like, hey, do you want to just, you know, do his blue jeans commercial? And then he went from blue jeans, he did cigarettes, he did sports equipment. He he did what he called uh, masculine merchandise. Mm. And so since they were in the Philippines, other movies that did Vietnam War stuff would kind of come and, and shoot there every now and then. And so he asked one of the uh, directors that he knew to like, hey, can you get me a role? Uh, and he did, you know, small movies in that area uh, as usually a drill instructor or a Marine until he got into a wonderful role in the hit film Apocalypse Now. Never yes. heard of her. Yeah, uh, he was a background actor uh, until he made friends with one of the explosive guys, and then they needed somebody to do a bit in a helicopter. Mm. And he was like, hey, can you give me that role as the helicopter guy? And then he was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. I make explosives. I like and, the accent you've given this man. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, so, and then, you know, when you watch Apocalypse Now, there's a part where there's a helicopter. That's Lee Irming doing that so very cool but it is it's his time uh where he played a drill instructor in a movie called the boys in company c uh and also provided military advising for this movie that got kubrick's eye because kubrick was a sucker for realism yep and i'll get more into that when we get to like the camera choices he picked but okay he Wanted it to be as real as possible. So he's like, okay, we need somebody to do kind of military instruction uh, for the actors and stuff on set. And so he asked Lee Erming to do the military advising for the movie. And Lee Erming took this because he had read the book um, and Mm -hmm. knew that the sergeant was a role and he wanted that role. And so he took the advising position solely to get close to Kubrick so he could get the role. Yeah, that makes sense. He's playing That's chess. smart. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this man played so much goddamn chess. He's playing 3D chess. <laughs> He's playing chess 4D master. chess. He's insane because he, he worked as an advisor for some time. Once the actors showed up, it was his job to train them like they were actually in the military. So they basically did like a boot camp? They actually did, yeah. Okay. Military boot camp. And Arlie Ermey like led the boot camp? He led the boot okay. camp. He did. Mm. He was basically doing what he had done you know, as <laughs> yeah. an actual drill instructor. He was... You know, everyone said he was a lovely man because he's he is a great guy. He's super nice and I've all heard that. that. Once he puts on that uniform, <laughs> the man's a demon. <laughs> he's from hell. Oh. He was putting them through all kinds of shit. And you know, the actors were like, "Well, I'm an actor. You know, just give me the rifle when the scene starts, and I'll do it. I don't need to do all this basic training." And Lee Arming told Kubrick, and Kubrick told the actors, and then the actors shut the fuck up and did what Lee Arming told them to do. Uh, so, you know, by the time they actually started filming, they were, they have basically done basic training. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they were already there. Do you, uh, do you happen to know how long their training was? Uh, it, I believe is written down here somewhere. Cause I think for like Saving Private Ryan, it was like two weeks or something. Like it wasn't crazy. I think, I think basic training. Basic training doesn't last long anyway. It's, it's okay. like, yeah, like two, it is like two, two weeks, three weeks, oh, okay. three weeks, something like that. Um, I don't, so it might have been around that time. Yeah. You can you can take out the question if you don't have it written down. Yeah, now, no. so that's fine. I was just um, curious. That's a um, decent question. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm here to provoke. <laughs> so he was doing his role as uh, the drill instructor, and he told Kubrick, "Hey, you know, I want to do the role as drill sergeant." But Kubrick had seen what he had done in the boys from uh, Company C. Company C. Yeah, and he played a nice version of a drill sergeant. You know, he cared about the people in his troop in that movie. And so he was like, well, you're too nice. 
So, no. <laughs> Which is we, funny in retrospect, knowing his role. Yeah. So they got a man named Tim Calceri. Uh He was the original actor made to play the drill sergeant. Uh, and you probably know him better as the door gunner on the helicopter. Uh, oh, who's like, you should do a story about me. Who shoots me. women and children. Yeah, who shoots women and children. My count was like 176 or something yeah. like that. I don't yeah. think he was Southern. I just gave him a Southern accent water for buffalo. Um, And so when, because Colseri was also in the military. Okay. Um, So when he was given the lines to audition and all of that, he kept, he was given the wrong lines. And so he would do the take and, you know, Cooper would be like, well, that's, that's wrong. You didn't do it right. Um, And so he would have to redo it. And, you know, all this stuff. And he eventually did get the role. And so when Kubrick was giving him the lines that he would have to learn, Kubrick was constantly changing the lines. So he'd memorize yeah. a certain number of lines. Kubrick changes it. Has to memorize new lines. Kubrick changes it. Has to memorize new lines. That is very typical of Kubrick. Yeah, I he, remember. He, he did that on The Shining. He did on The Shining. Like, yeah. as they were shooting, he was sitting on his typewriter rewriting. Yeah. He was changing lines constantly that Colseri, Tim Colseri, couldn't sleep. He was so busy having to memorize all these lines that were constantly changing. They give him, they gave him like these little yellow sleeping pills, oh. um, and he took them once, and it knocked him out immediately. But it left him groggy the next day, so he just refused to take them. They put this man in a trailer for twelve hours to do two lines. So they wow. they, they, gave, they gave him a trailer. They said, "All right, in twelve hours, have your lines memorized." Gave him the sheet. It's two goddamn lines. So he still fucked up every now and then, though. Because he didn't say fucking chair instead of just chair. Well, he said How chair instead of fucking chair. How could he? Yeah. Important uh, detail. Now, here's where Lee Erming comes back into the story. So they need to fill the barracks out with extras. And so they want to record the extras' faces. And to get the proper reactions, they need their drill sergeant to do the lines. Mm-hmm. And Colseri did the lines slower. More like how you would if you were reading lines to someone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was doing so many takes of this that his voice would give out. Lee Ermey was in the room when he was doing this and would pick up where he left off. So Colseri would be like, my throat is fucked. I need to take a break. And there are still extras that need to be, you know, uh, taped. So Lee Ermey would take over and do the lines. And motherfucker would yell. He would go (laughs) whole hog on these guys. Whole hog. He knew this is my chance. Right. To show that I'm better for this role and yeah. I was built for this role. I was made for this role. I've done this role. Cast yeah. me as this role. So he had the guy filming the uh, takes do it as if it was going to be in the movie. So he made sure that Lee Army was also in the shot. Uh, they they lined up all of the extras, you know, the same way uh, in the movie where it's like the panning shot. where yeah. it Like at the very beginning? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So they basically recreated that whole bit with Lee Army and... He fucking crushed it. I mean, he like he was yelling, he was shouting, he was ad libbing all these lines, uh, knowing full well that Kubrick was gonna have to watch it. Right. And Kubrick watched the tapes, and the next day Kubrick came in, he was smiling, and he was <laughs> he looked over to Lee, and he's like, "I know what you fucking did." <laughs> oh. And Colseri gets a letter from oh. Kubrick. Ugh. saying womp womp sorry my dude basically yeah um it, it wasn't even from kubrick it was uh kubrick's right hand man i know i said his name earlier vitelli vitelli yeah so vitelli gives colseri the letter and it's basically just this letter saying like from kubrick 
hey, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I have to do what I think is going to be best for the movie. And, you know, I'm, I feel like a coach picking between two star quarterbacks, but I'm going to go with Lee Ermey for the role. And Colseri was depressed. He was pissed that Kubrick couldn't tell him from to his face, basically. Hmm. And so he wrote a letter saying, you know, like, I'm insanely depressed that you sent you sent a letter instead of telling me in person like this sucks i i did all this for this role and you know here i am not getting it i can't believe you told me in a letter and then kubrick sends a letter back going your letter depressed me (laughs) i am insulted by your letter uh so lee ermy gets the role and that's it that's the end of that no there's more okay (laughs) and so Golly, it's just like 50% of what Lee Yerming says is made up by him, right? Did he, obviously, this is like, I think one of the most famous lines that he says in the movie when he talks about like, you look like the kind of guy who doesn't have the decency like while he's getting fucked to like give the guy a reach around. Did he improv that? He did improv that. And also Kubrick didn't know what a reach around was. Okay. So he had to explain what a reach around was to Kubrick. (laughs) You know, I've like heard little things about this about Kubrick where he seems like, unknowledgeable in certain parts of certain aspects of the world that i find very interesting very funny yeah and so one of the things they did was they put a camera on him on on lee and he fucking went off for 10 to 15 minutes at a time just pounding out insults going and they sent that back to production and they had all he said written out um, Ah. and they picked the juiciest ones oh, to put in the movie okay they had 150 pages of insults <gasps> from the thing that i read that, that is actually incredible that he can think like that yeah because coming up with insults is kind of hard but to do it that reliably is wild five foot six i didn't know they stack shit that high <laughs> that was an argument. yeah he's got some like really great insults and again obviously like he's great in the role his delivery is hilarious yeah yeah I mean, just, and like you said, the the voice, mm-hmm. like I was telling Mariah, I was like, drill surgeons, I feel like could make really good, like singers. Ooh. Just because you, you've got to be yelling all the time and not losing your voice. Did he improv the, like the, the rhymes that they say when they're like running outside, do you know? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, One, if two, it's, three, if it's four, Lee Erming's line, love Marine yeah. Corps. yeah, if it's Lee Erming's line, it's most likely he made it up. That's cool. Um, and Kubrick let him make it up because he was a drill instructor. Yeah. So anything he says is realistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so his insults were so vulgar, so rude that they, when they were making the Japanese version of the movie, they had to hire a, a Japanese porn star to do the voiceover for Lee Erming because uh, he was the only one willing to say all the vulgar shit <laughs> that he was saying. And apparently... Lee Erming had hella bad breath. Oh. They described it as a mixture of coffee, cigarettes, and tooth decay. Ooh. So when he's up in their faces, mm. that kind of like like scrunching of the face that they do is partially because his breath was so goddamn terrible. But Lee Erming was no, he was not immune to losing his voice because he's shouting all the time. Um, and so he would lose his voice and they'd have to take breaks and, and all that. Uh, the apparently the donut scene took thirty takes. Uh, Were they doing all the push-ups? Yeah. Oh god. I was thinking about when they're doing actual exercises. I was like, How that many must takes? have been awful. They probably were doing just actual workouts. Yeah. They got ripped, probably. Probably. 
Except for Pyle, who got fat. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, womp womp, uh-oh, he wanted takeout at one o'clock in the morning, specifically Chinese, uh, in one in the Ermie morning. did? Ermie did. Okay. Lee Ermie got into a car crash, he hit a tree, uh, and Yikes. broke all the ribs on one side of his body, <gasps> because the steering wheel rammed his chest at hella fast. Uh, man, and unfortunate. Kubrick says that this man only survived because he was still conscious and was able to flash his lights uh, until a passer passing motorist stopped and you know helped him. And he was out. He was you know just there with you know a whole half of his body shattered for like several hours. Wow. Again, my jaw has just dropped. Holy cow! Yeah. Wow. So, um, I mean, he was fucking out for four and a half months. Like this is like in the middle of filming? Middle of filming. Oh, damn. And so they call up Kulseri, the, uh, the guy who originally had it, and they're like, hey, we're going to need you back because, you know, Lee is out of commission and we're fucked, essentially. And then the next day, the insurance company goes, no, we'll cover the payment. You don't, you don't have to do that. We'll cover the, you know, cost of the months that you lost. So you can keep Lee Ermey. So they call Kulseri back up and they go, oh. No, actually, no. Actually, if you could not uh, come back, that'd be oh, awesome. this poor man. And so, Colseri actually sued the the production wow. because wow. he had kept his head shaved oh. this entire time because they were like, we know we might need you back at some point, and so it was stopping him from getting other roles. So he sues, and he ends up, you know, Kubrick is like, okay, we have a position of door gunner. Do you want to be door gunner? And he goes, listen, writers like to write. Artists like to make art. I'm an actor. I'll take the role. Um, and he was like, I would have loved the experience way more if I didn't have to go through this like weird hell in order yeah. to be a fucking door gunner. Um, and he actually does get his own cre- like blank screen, Colseri's name okay. in the final movie. And he said that like he wept because at the very least, mm. Kubrick could give him that. Yeah. Kind of like his own recognition for all the hell that he'd been yeah. through. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. You know, like going in. One hand of kindness from Kubrick. Uh, going into this movie and, and knowing that we were going to do an episode on it, I definitely um, did not expect to be talking about this this character and this actor <laughs> yeah. Yeah. as much as um, you have been. That's crazy. Yeah. And so we, so he went up in the helicopter. Um, he did his lines. Guessing Kubrick wasn't on the helicopter. Kubrick was not on the helicopter because he didn't like to fly. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> And, you know, it took all day to do the helicopter stuff. Um, and then they land and Cooper goes, go, goes, cool, drive 90 minutes. Uh, I'm sorry, not 90 minutes, 90 miles to this, uh, the production place to make sure that the reels look good. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? I'm barely awake as is. So he had to go uh, with Leon, the, the right hand man guy, to the production. It took like forever for them to drive there um and he's like i'm surprised leon didn't crash the fucking car because i was you know losing consciousness in and out the entire drive um but that's the last little thing he had to worry about he was set free matthew on the other hand back to matthew back to matthew he's not set free so now we're in like specifically production stories i have a very quick question about production okay did they shoot the like the training second yeah Okay, yeah, so I figured because like they all have hair, and then obviously they had to like shave their heads. So I figured they yeah. Kind of first, worse. they did all the Vietnam stuff. Yeah, okay. And then they went back and they did all the training grounds. Okay, that's that's what I figured. Okay. And so Matthew at the time when he's filming um, the Vietnam stuff, 
his wife goes into early labor and has to get an emergency C-section. Ooh. Uh, and he's like, I, I have to be there for my wife. And Kubrick goes, no, what are you going to do? The doctors don't need you. <laughs> the fuck are you going to do? <laughs> and so Matthew goes, all right, I'm going to cut my hand open and end the production right here and now. If you don't let me go see my wife. And That's true love. Kubrick goes, all right, go see your wife. <laughs> fuck. S- says the man who wouldn't leave his dog. <laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> Have a little bit of empathy. Yeah. Um, Kubrick's a silly little guy. (laughs) Yeah. Kevin Major Howard, who I think plays, he plays Cowboy, um, said in an interview, the production where they pretended to be Marines in Vietnam took 17 months, which is four months more than than the tour in Vietnam. So they were pretending to be Marines longer than Marines were Marines. Also, I was gonna. I was gonna ask how long production was because obviously Kubrick is like a perfectionist. I was gonna takes say a million takes, but that answers yeah. the question. That's insane. There you go. Um, random side note. Shoot, I forget what it is, and we're not gonna look it up. But I believe Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick's last film, holds the record for the longest production time. Really? Of any movie? Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Like the longest consecutive oh, shooting. Okay, okay. Like not how long it's. I know there's like, that one. Um, I want to cover it. I think it's called Roar. It's a movie about uh, the lions, lions that took yeah. like 10 years to film. Yeah, well, no, no, it was like but, consecutive okay. like shooting and it was something like a year and a half of just back to back days. Like every day they were doing something. Okay, hot take. What a shitty film to end on. I do not like Eyes Wide Shut at all. I haven't seen it. So well, we won't go. Crucify we won't discuss me, it. whatever. Yeah. The, the guy who played eight ball, uh, Dorian Hayward, wanted to negotiate new pay because the production had lasted so long that uh, they were getting extensions. So they were getting like extending the, the contracts. And Kubrick got so fucking mad at the idea that this guy wanted to get a pay raise. Uh, he was quoted as just like pacing around his trailer and around set until eventually he came back and said, I'm going to fucking kill him. Uh, oh, oh, and oh. that's exactly what he did. Immediately wrote in the script that eight ball dies. Ah. Uh-huh. And for the rest of uh, Dorian Hayward's time on set, he would lay in the cold mud getting hit with squibs over and over and over again for days. What you say? (laughs) (laughs) Because he he dared to ask for a pay raise. Yeah. And that was his punishment. Isn't that illegal? Uh Like that retaliation? (laughs) Couldn't tell you. Kubrick did Probably it. now. But also Kubrick was, you know. Um, Kubrick. Yeah. And so, so there were like stories of people who would like, you know, the beginning of the shoot day, uh, they put this man in the mud, put him squibs on him, full power. So if you don't know what a squib is, it's essentially this little explosive they put on your body that shoots out, you know, like sparks and, and blood and all this stuff to pretend to get hit. So they cover the man up in him, fire him off, pretend to die somebody left set was gone the entire day came back at the very end of the day he's still laying in the mud getting hit with squibs so and that scene which is going to take us to our next little bit is in the middle of winter so Mm -hmm. it's kubrick sitting there two jackets his little fucking beanie going do it better do it better do it better i don't know what he sounds like I, um, I do, but it's not like. Hey, do it better. Hey, hey do it better. Even though I don't get it, hey, do it again. 
Do it again. Every time you gotta do it again, I'm gonna have another Duncan. <laughs> that was take 28. It fucking sucked. We're going on to 2082. Uh, <laughs> I'm, gonna I'm gonna have your grandkids doing this. Come on. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he brutalized this man for wanting a pay raise. But the, the scene where they get lost and they're behind that kind of like short cover mm-hmm. took uh, five days to get because it was so cold, you could see their breath. Mm. So first, Kubrick was like, okay, put ice in your mouth. And you know, right. that'll keep the breath from uh, turning into steam. See, I would love that because I love eating you have ice. Crunch on ice. Yeah. It's my favorite snack. I would not like that. Yeah, well, Matthew uh, was kind of garbling all his lines because he had ice in his mouth. <laughs> so they had to change mm. tactics. They right. put heaters just off screen. Uh, for him to, for you know, so that that area would be warm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the heaters were too loud. So the next day they got big old tubes, like hundreds of feet of this like aluminum tubing so that they could put the heaters really far away and just blast <laughs> that scene with heat. <laughs> okay, funny. Um, and it was ruining the actors' voices. Uh, oh, was it dry? Yeah, it was just so dry that pretty much all the actors like had to right. stop because their voices were just torn to shreds. Huh. Uh, Matthew said that, you know, he had to keep taking shallow breaths and swallows as to, like, not get his voice fucked up. That's random side tangent. I was reading something about a guy who worked on an iron forge, and he had to, like, test the temperature of the metal, and he'd wear all this protective equipment, and he could only take shallow breaths because it's too hot and it's bad for you. Hmm. There you go. Um, It took anywhere from two to five days to reset all of the explosions that uh, happened in, in that scene. So, you know, you do a take, Cooper goes, don't like it, come back in five days. So, good golly. Thanks. What I'm amazed more is that he himself didn't get like fed up with this. I, I would lose patience. Even if it's not what I want, I'd be like, okay, it's, it's going to work. It, it'll be fine. But for him to have the, like, I don't know, I don't want to say determination because that's, that's got a positive connotation to it. Just yeah. for him to, after five days, still be like having that power to, make it good and it's like geez man or sitting there after 127 takes which is hours and it'd be like no another one it's like what the what's wrong with you see uh i was like i was gonna talk about this later but i'll just talk about it now really quick Mm -hmm. obviously again i'm in film school um and i'm in the directing program and my approach like couldn't be more different (laughs) than kubrick because for me at least it's like once it's in the actor's hands in my opinion it's like the actors are the characters. So they they know the character because they are the character. And it's, it, But even with like explosions and stuff, it's like even if it's not, oh, the rubble went this way or whatever, I'm like, well, sometimes it isn't picturesque. It isn't ideal. And that's realistic. And so yeah. for him to want realism, but then for certain things be so specific, I find very interesting. And that's all I was going to yeah. say on that. It's crazy. It's hell. Um, there is a fun little Easter egg thing. Uh, the girl he kills in the end, mm-hmm. her name, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Lee Yong, that's the girl's name, like her actual name. Okay. When they did her scene, they filmed it, she did it, Kubrick brought her back uh, to look at the scene, she watched it, she cried, because she was just horrified of what she was seeing. Uh, so they did that in one take, because Kubrick didn't want to put her... Interesting. Because she was, she was I, 12 I guess years she was old. A she was a child. child. Oh, she's but 12? Still. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It didn't read like that, did it? <laughs> she's, she's a child. She's a child. Yeah, that makes that makes the scene a lot darker. 
Yeah. Not that it wasn't already, but... And for the third time, my jaw has dropped. I didn't realize she was 12. I thought she was like in her 20s. No, yeah, no, that's a child. This is the whole point, is that... Damn, uh, yeah, the, I didn't get that. Okay. Yeah, because it's like, oh, you know, these men who were trained to be killers are fighting a, you know, artificial war to them. Mm-hmm. But in the hearts and minds, an amazing documentary about the Vietnam War, you know that they're fighting for their livelihood. So 12-year-old yeah. has the same reason to kill as these soldiers. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you can, her name is on a billboard when Joker is getting interviewed. Mm. And when he, when he says, I want to be the first kid on my block to get a confirmed kill, mm-hmm. her name is in the background. Interesting. Huh. Funny little I like touch. that. Yeah. So that was fun. Um, however, this movie does not have an end yet. Well, okay, it does have an end, but Cooper doesn't like it. Essentially, Joker dies. Oh, in the um, original ending? In the original ending, he dies. Okay. And it cuts back to when he's a child. And he's playing soldier, and he mm. pretends to like clutch his chest and and keels over and dies. Huh. Um, I kind of like that. That's yeah. all right. Kubrick wasn't like conf- he didn't love the ending though. So he would often because he considered himself not a director but like a, a taste machine. Okay. So he would take ideas okay. from anybody on the crew um, as to like how things should go. I like that. I like that. Yeah. And all he, you know, he considers himself, I taste what everyone says, and I, I pick what... <laughs> oh. and, and you. Okay, okay. Holds a guy up against the wall. Hey, you, what do you got? <laughs> Give it to me. Um, and so he took the, the main cast at, the, at that scene, uh, you know, Joker, Cowboy, uh, I think... Rafterman. Uh, Rafterman, um, Animal Mother. He takes them all into a, a room, and he goes, all right. How should the movie end? Uh, Arliss, who who played Cowboy, says the movie should end with him waking up next to Joker in an army hospital. So he doesn't actually die uh, in, in his version of the ending. Because Cowboy is on the radio. He gets shot by the sniper yeah. and dies. Yeah. He says in his ending, he wakes up in a, in a hospital and Joker is also there. Um, Adam. Who Garbo. Pl- yeah. Adam, who played Animal Mother, uh, had the idea that, you know, it's after the war and Joker is at a dry cleaner. And he hears someone say Semper Fi, which, uh, Mariah, what does that mean? Um, it means always faithful. It's the motto of the Marine Corps. There you go. So it's the motto of the Marine Corps, and he turns around, and, and it's Animal Mother. Oh, okay. Uh, so that was his version. Of the I movie. love how he, he was like, I should be in the end. <laughs> uh, Matthew was so fucking pissed at these just ideas. He hated them. And so Matthew goes... You know what? How about we shoot them all? You'd realize how fucking stupid they are. And then we'll reshoot the scene like every other fucking scene we've done. And Kubrick called him a cunt for two months. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, though? I feel like what's strange is that I feel like Kubrick is so hypocritical in the way that he approaches some things. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, I thought maybe he would appreciate that. But no, he did not. (laughs) To Kubrick, there were no bad ideas. He hated when anybody said that an idea was stupid or bad. That, oh, okay. That is, that's so interesting, though, from what I thought he would be like. For him to be so open, hearing people's thoughts just isn't what I would have thought about him. Yeah. It's all been, that's, that's all the fun facts that I have. Now it's all just about oh, camera and lighting. I have a question. Who came up with the ending then? Uh, oh, the, oh, yeah. The ending actually has kind of like a, a bit of a double meaning. Um, mm. I, it was a group effort to make the ending, I think, okay. from what I remember. I really liked the ending. No one per, like, I can't remember exactly who said it, but it actually might have been Matthew. Okay. Um, if I remember correctly. But 
it's it's hard for us now to understand. They did that ending because a couple years prior, the Mickey Mouse Club was a big television show. Mm-hmm. And so right. the whole point is, look what we've done to this generation. Yes. These are the kids that we raised on Mickey Mouse's clubhouse, and now they're slaughtering 12-year-olds. Yeah. Matthew actually did have a proposed idea for the ending. He was like, Joker needs to live. He needs to continue and remember every horrible thing that happened, every person who committed suicide, every child that he killed, every friend that he lost. He needs to remember. Um, And so that was his ending. And a part of that kind of comes into the Mickey Mouse Club, where it's just like, this is the horror of war. Whoop-dee-doo. Like, we've destroyed a generation. Mm. So that's kind of why they picked the, the Mickey Mouse Club song. Yeah, but that would, yeah. it definitely works. Yeah. Um, that was actually lost on a lot of British viewers because they didn't oh, watch. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. they were just like, all right, they're singing Mickey Mouse Club. That's weird. But that was that. Um, now let's talk about the camera and lighting. Now that we've talked about all the actors and, and whatnot. Kubrick originally wanted to shoot this on 65 millimeter black and white, hmm. which is big. Uh, normal movies are shot on 35 millimeters, so this is kind of like double the size almost. Yeah. Um, so it's, he wanted it big and bold, that boy. Uh, big and bold is the way I old. Mm-hmm. But he wanted this to feel like a documentary. So then, <laughs> so he... <laughs> you said something that made absolutely no sense. And then just... <laughs> I don't know what that was. This is my drunk act. Oh, okay. Sorry. So he bought two of these cameras, two 65-millimeter cameras. Um, and then he thought, eh, what if we shot it on 16-millimeter? More like documentary style, you know, kind of like boxy frame, um, which is going to be more like actual documentaries because it's a smaller camera. So he bought two of those cameras. And then he thought, eh, we'll just go with 35. <laughs> he, during this time, he did, he bought, because he buys all his shit. Right? He doesn't rent it. He bought seven cameras and 70 to 80 lenses just to test them to see what, would they, what they would look like. That, okay. That's oh. a big commitment. But also, yeah. he's Kubrick, so you it kind of makes yeah. sense because, yeah, he rich, rich. Uh-huh. So they ended up going with 35 millimeter lenses, um, uh, cameras and lenses, uh, but desaturated the colors as much as possible mm-hmm. to All make right. it look more like the 16 millimeter film. Yeah, um, until they get to the sniper where it's like really orange. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very desaturated. So that's kind of what they kind of, because they, they were really looking for that documentary style. There was also the, the Luma crane. So this is, you know, Steadicams and stuff are still relatively, really new in this era. They used Steadicams for some stuff, but for the most part, they used, you know, cranes and, and, and stuff. Hmm. Uh, and these cranes were fucking big and they had a bunch of them. The cranes themselves were very interesting, but he did have a Centurion Mirari, something like that. I don't know. It's a car. I don't know cars very well. But essentially, they gutted this thing. So they took the engine out. They strapped two cameras to it, and they would just have six dudes push this fucking car around. So it's like a car dolly, essentially? Yeah, it's yeah. a car dolly. All right. Because apparently it, had, it has really good suspension. Mm. Oh, okay. For like so they, stable. They yeah. would just have this like... One dude driving, guys operating the cameras, and then six dudes pushing this car around to get shots. Um, is that like the the drills and stuff like that when they're like following? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All that is shot in a car for some reason. Uh, and Kubrick wanted this to be, again, as realistic as possible. And what's more realistic than zero lighting? Right. 
You can, Natural I mean, you can kind of just tell. So, um, you know, I'll get into like more of the specifics of lighting, but this is right now the camera. They bumped that shit. So they used, they used a high speed film called Kodak 5294 with an 800 ASA, which is basically ISO. Uh, and this basically means that shit was hella bright and hella grainy. Mm. Okay. And they made that aperture as open as possible, which for all of you folk that don't understand cameras, when you open up your aperture really wide, uh, it lets in as much light as possible, but your depth of field gets really tiny. That means what's in focus, that that margin is very narrow. So that that means like, you know, if it's focused on one person, the background is like super blurry. Exactly. Trying to just break it down for right. I'm yeah. very simplistic. And so the focus was always kind of a problem when they were filming stuff. Uh, but thankfully, Kubrick doesn't like moving shots unless it helps tell the story. So he, he found them pretentious. Interesting. Uh, if you do a moving shot, that doesn't need to be a moving shot. I understand that. You know, he has that. And uh, dude is a fucking simp for Nikon. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Simp. He's a goddamn simp. He bought every, every single Nikon lens for this production. He modified the cameras so that they would take Nikon lenses. <laughs> He well, I mean, had, you just need, like, an adapter for yeah. that, I would think. No, he, like, rebuilt the... It wasn't an adapter, because an adapter kind of changes yeah. how the shot looks. Mm-hmm. So he just redid the mount itself. Yeah, I know God he's damn. very famous for tinkering with his cameras. Yeah. Um, and whenever... You know, he didn't want to change the uh, aperture. So whenever they're outside and the sun is ungodly bright, because, you know... The sun? The sun. He would just put, like... Three to four ND filters, which are basically sunglasses for your camera. And he would just polarize the hell out of it. Huh. Uh, he also used a viewfinder, which is like a little telescope that you put lenses on um, so you can get the feel of what your shot's going to look like. So he had a custom one made that could fit Nikon lenses so that he could get exactly what the camera's going to see. Uh, he also used a uh, Polaroid camera to get shots because when you're looking through a viewfinder at the end of the day you're using all that meaty goodness inside your eye to get the shot right polaroid camera is going to use film so you're going to get a better idea of what it's going to look like on film which is the medium you're shooting it uh you're not shooting it with your eyeballs yeah (laughs) unfortunately we're not Not there yet (laughs) so he was so particular in the shots that he wanted he'd get his little his little telescope out he would look he would look around the scene. He'd go, okay, right here. And the grip department would put a little chalk X where he's standing. They would mm. measure his height, get exactly where the lens is supposed to be, move the dolly into the position. Cooper would come, look through the view, the camera's viewfinder, and say, nope, wrong, do it again. So they'd move the dolly. He'd stand there. He'd go right here. They'd put an X. They'd move it a little bit back, um, thinking it would help. Get the camera to the exact millimeter that they had his camera at. Hooey. He goes, nope, wrong, do it again. And they ended up having to spend three hours busting concrete so that oh. they could get the dolly in the exact spot that he wanted. Wild. Wow. Wait, is this, do you know what shot this was for? Or is this just like a... This is, uh, it told me what shot it was for, but okay. I can't remember the exact one. Mm. Something in Vietnam. Oh, okay. Probably, yeah. So just the camera department was hell. Yeah, uh, I'd the, imagine. That being said, though, it was a set of like 15 people. Really? Yeah. He wanted a small team. 
Huh. So it was really fucking. I small. guess you know. I guess if you're going for really minimal lighting, you don't need much lighting crew. Yeah. So there's that. And so about the lighting crew, he only had one electrician, one lighting person. Oh, <laughs> and oh my God. He, I, I have more than that on my student set. Yeah. Uh, this guy was pretty much just running a dimmer most times. Okay. Uh, it got to the point where, because this guy was union, so he was getting paid for a full days of work. He didn't have a full days of work. So Kubrick said, okay, go to my house and fix my electricity. And so the dude just went to his house and did electrician <laughs> shit and just to earn his pay. Uh, to earn his pay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, all of the lighting equipment, for the most part, except for some minor cases, fit in a single suitcase. That's the dream. Oh my god. <laughs> so in the barracks, uh, no lighting equipment. It was lit solely by the outdoor light, the light coming in through the window. And the practical lights, the fluorescent well, yeah. lights of the actual scene. Wow. And it helped a lot because that basically meant, you know, they didn't, whenever they changed scenes or changed shots, they didn't need to redo lighting. Right. Because the yeah, lighting no, is always there. That be- so that being said, lighting the bathroom scene took yes. seven days. I noticed. The lighting is phenomenal With that, like yeah. the sort of light coming yeah. through the windows and casting the shadows. Yeah. So they had, I mean, they had like a super specific, I had it at one point, but I was like, "It's the name of this light is so specific, no one's going to give a shit. But they had there's, this light. There's some listener out there that's yeah. like, no, I want to know. Yeah. Well, well Google sorry, it Google look it up. Uh, they had a light four stories high, shining down, and Kubrick was so particular on how it would bounce off the tiles onto um, Vincent's face. Wild. And but was it, it just the one light? It was just the one light coming through the oh, window. And he wanted, because he wanted that kind of blueness to yeah. uh, kind of be a juxtaposition to the kind of warmer oranges that the scene often had. Uh, the only other time we see blue in the barracks is when Pyle's getting the shit beat out of him. Mm. Right. In so the soap scene associated with a not good time. Uh, so it took seven days. The actual shooting did not take long at all, but it took seven days to because again he nailed it first try with the gun scene. Mm-hmm. Right. That was that. But for the night scenes during the uh, Tet Offensive, when they fight the when they fight the American you know military base uh, at night, they had these massive fucking lights, like fucking huge things. They used they used. Uh, 1,200 amps of electricity each light, and they could get a 400 square yard area of place lit up. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Kubrick had four of them placed throughout the scene so that whenever they... Kubrick had a lot of money. Kubrick had a fuck ton of money. And so whenever they had to change positions, they would just go, okay, turn that one off, turn that one on, and then, okay, scene's lit. (laughs) Call it a day. Um... And that wraps it up. That's it. That's everything. Damn. Doggy. Doggy. What'd you guys think of the movie? I like it. I actually particularly like this movie. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good. I liked it before. Seen it a couple of times. Pulling pulling up my notes. I'm pulling up notes. Do it. Should we just jump into it? Yeah. You want to uh, go first? You go first. I go first? Yeah, okay. you go first. I like this movie. Um, I think... Again, I the ending is just a personal favorite of mine. I really like it. One of the things being, yeah, the Mickey Mouse just reminds you like, oh, these are kids. You know, they they were kids and they've they've been turned into this. I like the way it's cut together and shot. 
I, you know, I've read somewhere that the, the intention is, you know, when we first like see them walking and their silhouettes in the orange flame as they're singing, you know, M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. And then we cut and they're going, so at first they're going left to right and then we cut and they're going right to left. Yeah. And it gives this impression that they're just sort of wandering around as they're singing this song. And it's just a bunch of kids wandering through this desolate war wasteland that they've been trained into just lost chaos is is messed up and then you know that that goes into the further message of the movie which i really like because oftentimes war movies don't discuss this is like the danger of taking young men and making them into killing machines you know the 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 philosophy of the military is that they take you and they break you down so they can build you up into what they want and pile is just sort of like a warning of like you, you train someone to kill they're going to kill. Well, and even at that one point when um, Arlie Army is sitting them down and is asking mm. about these shooters, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who killed yeah. JFK. Yeah. Like, and, and it's like, you and, know, they were both in the Marines. And that's and sort like, of what hmm. it's alluding to is just this, this how sort of horrific it is that it's like we're making you to do this just horrendous thing. Yeah. And, and, and to go into war. And on the flip side, you, you know, you go through the training, you either turn out like Pyle or you can turn out like the gunner who yeah. just shoots innocents. Yeah. Who's laughing as he shoots at civilians? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I think focusing in again, focusing the first thirty minutes on the training alone is really interesting. You don't see that a lot with war films. And I know I don't. You, I think you sort of mentioned this earlier. I, I, I would consider this an anti-war film. Mm-hmm. And for me, the criteria for something like this being anti-war film is if at the end of the day, whether or not war is depicted as something that is necessary or needs to happen. And this movie does not depict it as something that needs to happen. And so for me, it meets the anti-war criteria on top of the, you know, showing how awful it is, the chaos and how it affects the people's lives and that there is no plus side. There's no, it doesn't glorify it in any way, shape or form. And so for me, I'm like, that's anti-war film. So freshman year of college, I had a class uh, called War on Film. Interesting. And my final paper was about uh, there was this idea from a French director that there was no such thing as an anti-war film because of film's inherent uh, need to be entertainment. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, it's tough because, you know, you watch Full Metal Jacket and at the same time where you're like, this is needless violence, you still get, if you come and fight for the military, you will be allowed to do whatever you want. It is a playground for them out mm-hmm. there. And there's a sense of camaraderie and, you know, being able to just do whatever you want with your friends. Um, but I, I still think out of every war movie I've watched, Full Metal Jacket is the closest yeah. to an anti-war film. Well, th- there's one movie. I, first of all, I like anti-war films because even though, yeah, it's still entertainment, I think by just the this code structure of what an anti-war film is, they're kind of designed to not be... in incredibly profitable mm-hmm. because people a lot of people don't want to go to a movie theater and see an anti-war especially if it's something involving their country you know that's it's yeah. not going to sell maybe you'll make a profit if it's good but like it's not designed to you know be profitable there's a movie by elam klimov it's a russian movie i'm, I'm going to be pretentious you know film student here it's called come and see other film people probably know what i'm talking about it is i think in my opinion the 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 precipice anti-war film i honestly and you can i think it should be mandatory viewing for like everybody really it's it is one of the best war films i've ever seen and we will be covering it 
some point on this podcast because not only is it just a fantastic film in terms of how it's made, but the meaning and you know what it's going for is great, but also the production is insane. Mm-hmm. But that that movie and how it depicts war, it's World War II, is just phenomenal and it's harrowing. It's it's like one of the most difficult movies that isn't just a documentary to watch. And I know you probably love to hear that, Mariah, but I, I think that movie specifically when it comes to anti-war is the most important one. See, I'm down for anti-war films. That's fine. Yeah. There's, there's, it's just, it's rough. It's yeah. rough. I, th- I think other uh, good like anti-war films I would say would be Platoon. Platoon I think that one's pretty Platoon's another one. That one's pretty good. And then um, Casualties of War. That one's pretty good. That one, um, have you, either of you guys seen that one? I've not seen it. I've it's with it. um, Michael J. Fox. <clears throat> and it's about like this little squad where they take a Vietnamese woman basically as a sex slave. Right. <laughs> and Michael J. Fox like reports them and it goes through the process of him like trying to get justice for what his uh, comrades did to this poor woman. Very good. Very depressing. Um. Okay. But anyways, anti-war films is just a really it's interesting facet of film while we're you know saying hey watch this watch this i i do think the documentary of hearts and minds uh which is kind of like it it, there's no actual interview it's all just straight footage from the war there's some interviews but they're like interviews from other things Mm. um and it talks a lot about how like boy oh boy the americans did some really fucked up shit yeah uh and it's really good um okay on to what i think um obviously i yeah i enjoy this movie i I mean, not a hot take. I love that it just drops you in right into training because that is exactly what they did to the young men who enlisted or were drafted. Um, Same thing. A lot of people talk about how it feels like two different movies because, you know, the first part is training. Second part is in um, Vietnam. To me, it kind of feels like there's definitely a three-act structure in this Mm -hmm. um, with the training um, in Vietnam and then the sniper being that third part. Yeah. Um, and I like how it really, again, first of all, drops you into the boot camp and then it also drops you right into Vietnam because, again, that's how it was. They were suddenly right. dropped in and, all right, go kill people now. Thank you. Um, Cinematography-wise, I they did some really cool long shots. Obviously, there's the bit at the very beginning when Arlie Army is, like, yelling at them and it is going through the whole thing. There's one shot in particular. Um, this is right after... It's in the kind of like that second act when Joker has just kind of joined and he's finally getting to see action and they're slowly moving on the offensive and it's a long shot as they kind of like slowly are advancing. I think the tension's really good in that shot. So mm-hmm. you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Love that one. Um, in general, again, kind of talking with the anti-war stuff, I really like how there's like, oh yeah, here's um, a pit of dead people. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Oh, oh, they're all joking around. Oh, he lifts a he, and then this soldier lifts a hat, and it's a dead Vietnamese soldier. Hilarious! Look, mm. look at that guy, and it just like reminds you how truly horrible it is. Um, I think that's really good. And then, lastly, I'll say the soundtrack and the score is great. Yeah, which we kind of teased. It was done by Kubrick's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking like you know, in Forrest Gump, like Forrest Gump has a great soundtrack, and it uses like. hugely popular songs from like each time period and stuff like that one of the things i like about this movie is that they don't go super heavy with the music or like quote-unquote vietnam kind of era Mm -hmm. music the the score is pretty ambient i'll just like kind of like more noises right but when they do use the songs i think it is perfectly placed Mm -hmm. and i really like how like i when they do the bird is the word 
I think I think the way that that song starts and goes to the montage is like perfect. Yeah. So that's the last thing. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Um, one thing I'd like to say is uh, when this is like a, the, a part that I've always enjoyed when Joker is looming over the girl um, and he's going to kill her. You know, it, prior in the movie, you always hear people telling him to take the peace sign uh, off his his helmet. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, in that scene. You know, you start the scene off being able to see the peace sign, and then it just falls into darkness mm. as he gets ready to kill this girl. And, and then he gets, when he kills her, you just you can't see the peace symbol in you. Yeah. Hmm. Which, knowing Kubrick, hundred percent intentional. A hundred percent intentional. Definitely. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. Notice and then that. also in that scene, they're playing the music you hear in the bathroom when Pyle kills himself. Yeah. Also, another moment I just really liked was when Pyle's in the bathroom, and then Arlie Ermy comes in, and he's yelling at Joker. And then Joker tells him what's going on. And then the Joel Sargent's tone shifts down to like a normal speaking voice for like the first time. And this just shows you like how serious he is. That like moment where he's like, like yeah. you listen to me. Like you're going to put that down. Like that moment. I really love. And Lee Irving was like, it happens. Like th- that legitimately does happen. Yeah. It's completely within reality for someone to, you know, sneak away a couple bullets from training and kill yeah. their drill sergeant and then themselves. Terrifying. War. War. Never changes. Yeah. I like I like the good video game reference. Thank you. I again I really like uh, the And aspect. I also totally got that because I'm a hardcore You're gamer. You're a gamer. Is a worker. gamer. She flosses every time we're not recording. Here I go again. Anyways, we've probably been here way too long. Yeah. So mm-hmm. let's let's wrap it up. If you hate us, don't like anything we said. Whoops. Sorry. Stefan, would you rate it? I would rate it. Oh no, I didn't think about okay. Does anyone have anything? Um, I, I think I got something. Okay, that. you go. You go while I think. I am going to give this movie an eight little piece buttons out of ten. Uh it's it's great. Um I although I said I like kind of how jarring uh the individual sections are, it is a little bit little bit too much for me. Mm-hmm. Like I think a little bit of cohesion, especially because I feel like I don't get to see Joker really focus on the fact that he witnessed that. Mm-hmm. It kind of just moves on and he doesn't seem that phased by it, but it's only when he has to kill the sniper that he becomes phased. And I'm like, I don't know. I think that would fuck me up forever if I witnessed that. Yeah, well, and that's that's what he wanted as an ending is he wanted you to see how tortured he is after the war. Yes, I just wish I had seen a little bit of torture from Dur- that yeah, during. initial. And that, you know, that is just a personal preference. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I would say eight or might creep up to an eight and a half on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I give it eight and a half bodies covered in lie. Oh. Honestly, I, I could even go up to a nine. I do like this movie, but I'll, I'll say solid eight and a half. I think it's a really good movie. I, again, I think the focus on, you know, sort of the men specifically, the men even more than the war, I feel like. Obviously, they're connected, but I really like that, that central focus, and I think it's good. I I'm so I'm so torn on this one. This is probably the one I've, I've had the most trouble figuring out because really? I'm, you know... You have the movie, and then you have what it took to make the movie. Right. The takes it, that it took. The takes that it took. And then you have fucking Kubrick. Yeah. I, I didn't even Kubrick. factor that in. You know? I, and, and I think you guys got it really close. I'm going to have to go with like an eight and a half. Um, I, this movie is really good. I, you know, having no, knowing what it took to make it is insane. But also, Kubrick is a fucking madman, and I'm not a huge fan of him <laughs> as yeah. a person. So that's going to bring it down a little bit. So I'm going to say eight and a half. Full metal jackets out of 10. 
He said the name. I said the name. <laughs> Cinema sense. Oh, full. Uh, end Metal. credits. Roll credits. Jacket. Um, also, there's that bit where like they kind of say the bad word. Uh, they say a lot of bad. They, words. Well, they what say the one. About? There was um, what was the one when they were talking to the stripper and she's like, "I don't." Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, yeah, they, say okay, a lot of fun, they say a lot of fun, spicy, zesty words. There were a couple words. times where we were just like, oh. Mama Mia meatballs. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the takes it took to make Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> I'm so glad you could come along with us on this goofy podcast about, you know, a uh, kind of hard to watch war, war, movie. War, this war, is definitely, war. I think, like the most serious movie that we've covered so far. Yeah. For sure. We, I can't... We, went, we went, I'm realizing we went from like the first just full-blown comedy planes trays and automobiles to now this really yeah. given our listeners whiplash but we like variety here we like variety Stefan, what's the next horrifying movie that will the follow next... the tune of this one <sighs> horrifying movie we have i like how where i checked the peak levels when i did that i was um, looking because you were like moving your head yeah i'm curious i'm curious how let it come out uh we are looking at the hit movie gremlins because we're going to be in december when uh, this comes out. So we're going to be talking about little gremlin guys and go, yum, yum. And we're going to have a blast. And we're going to do gremlin impressions. Yes. For sure. Amazing. I can't wait. But Mariah, in the meantime. Mariah, send us out. Give us your best John Wayne. Oh, my God. Yeah, Joker is John Wayne. All right. Um, Some of you may not come back alive. That's my John Wayne impression. <laughs> no, keep going. You got to get the rhythm. Um. Uh, hold on, I need John. Okay, never mind. I need John Wayne quotes. It's is that you, John Wayne? It's this me. Um, but okay, sorry. In the meantime, before our next episode, if Miles can keep quiet. <laughs> in the meantime, before our next episode, you can uh, follow us on social media. Keep up to date with us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the takes it took. If you want to send us an email, you know, let us know any movies that you'd like us to cover, any suggestions, any comments, any feedback. You can always email us at thetakesitook at gmail.com. Before, uh, before we send you out, Stefan, let me hear your John Wayne impression. I heard you. I heard. I heard you were. Sh- <laughs> I can't do John Wayne. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. 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 <laughs>